You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. And as always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. I thought I'd have to choose between an IT degree and certifications until I found WGU. There I earned both through one program. WGU prepared me to earn certs from CompTIA and others at no extra cost. WGU IT bachelor's and master's degrees have no set class times. Rather, students progress at their pace, completing as many courses as they can each six-month term. I graduated faster, and you could too. Learn more at wgu.edu. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Mark Lawrence. He is the director of the LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson, Presidential Library and Museum in Austin, Texas. He has written several books, including one I'm going to order at the end of this interview, and that is called Assuming the Burden, Europe and the American Commitment to War in Vietnam. He's also written The End of Ambition, the United States and the Third World in the Vietnam Era. He is a graduate of Stanford University and received his Ph.D. from Yale University. Dr. Lawrence, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's a privilege. Well, Mr. Mark Updegrove was very kind. He came on, discussed his book about John F. Kennedy, mm-hmm. and I kind of offhand mentioned, you know, I've written, I've read a little bit about LBJ and not, not a scholar by any means, but I'm fascinated by one of the most complex men in American history. And that stretches all the way back to the ooze. (laughs) Who should I talk to? And within a half of a millionth of a half of a second, he said, you've got to talk to Lawrence. You've just got to talk to Mark. 
<laughs> so I appreciate your time today. We're going to spend the next hour or so on Leaders and Legends talking about the 36th president of the United States, Lyndon right. Johnson. Well, I am honored to be here and, and uh, thank you for the praise. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Uh, very quickly, what drew you to Lyndon Johnson and, and the Vietnam era of American politics and foreign policy? So I'll be honest, I came to the Vietnam War before I came to Lyndon Johnson. When I was a grad student uh, back in the 1990s, I was, you know, as grad students do, looking for a dissertation topic. And a lot of my interests kind of were early post-Second uh, World War. I had some French language ability and um, kind of came to Vietnam um, as a subject that would bring together my interest in American foreign relations, French colonialism, uh, decolonization. And, you know, of course, uh, like all of us, I had in the back of my mind that, you know, Vietnam is an endlessly interesting and important subject to understand. So I, I wound up uh, focusing on the early period, in, in other words, the late 1940s, early 1950s, when Americans first made their commitment to, to Vietnam. Um, I, I came to LBJ really when I... Um, took a job at the University of Texas and the LBJ Presidential Library happens to be on the, you know, on the northeast corner of that campus. And suddenly I had this incredible trove of Vietnam related material on, you know, there's just a short walk from from my office. So I became more and more and more um, involved uh, with the, the history of the, the 1960s and, and uh, more and more fascinated with the Johnson presidency. And naturally, given my backgrounds working on Vietnam, I zeroed in on on, on uh, foreign policy and especially Vietnam in the LBJ period. Well, we're not going to we're going to talk about, if you like, the Vietnam aspect of LBJ's presidency. But I would love to have you on again to talk <laughs> just about Vietnam, if you like. It's kind of the first. I can remember the fall of Saigon in '75. Yeah. But I just remember how, like, even the Mary Tyler Moore show, if you watch that show, yeah. and it had all the clocks in the background, yeah. London, New York, Paris, one of them was Saigon, Saigon. Mm -hmm. which, it's you know, yeah. it seems so anachronistic these days, but back yeah. then it, you know, made perfect sense in the early 70s. That is fascinating. I have, I did not know that. And now I'm going to use that myself. <laughs> <laughs> Lyndon Johnson. He, to me, is the most fascinating personality who occupied the Oval Office since Teddy Roosevelt mm. because he came from nothing, achieved great success, was certainly no saint, nor was he all sinner, mm. but to have predicted the end of his presidency, how it ended to have predicted that on election night, 1964, when he annihilates Barry Goldwater, getting more than 61% of the popular mm -hmm. vote, the highest total, I think, ever, at least since James Monroe. Yeah. To me that, I hate to say that he's a figure you one would pity considering mm -hmm. all the men who died in Vietnam, mm -hmm. but I can't think of anyone else who came crashing down in the way that he did yeah. in such a protracted way. Yeah. Watergate was all consuming and only lasted about a year, about two years. June's yeah. the break in of 72. He resigns in August of 74. I mean, Nixon, yeah. but 
Lyndon Johnson just seemed like death of a thousand cuts and he couldn't figure it out. And that's the part is so fascinating. The smart, successful, persuasive, uh, political genius of a man just couldn't figure out the puzzle is that's the most I'm going to say without letting you talk (laughs) a and B uh, am I far off in my surmise? No, I mean, I, I think you really nailed it. Um, I, I think that a big puzzle, maybe the biggest puzzle about Lyndon Johnson and the Johnson presidency is exactly the one you've just sketched. This man in November of 1964 wins one of the biggest landslides in American history. Fast forward four years and everything has changed. He announces on March 31st of that year that he's not going to run. Uh, There are various reasons probably for that decision, but there's no question that this was a pitiable end to the uh, LBJ presidency that had begun amid such, uh, well, tragedy uh, in in, certainly in, in 1963 with the Kennedy assassination, but great fanfare, right? In November of 1964, when LBJ wins the presidency in his own right, four years later, he really um, concedes defeat, um, it, 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 it seems to acknowledge that he would have a hard time getting his party's nomination, or even if he got it, a hard time winning. And even if he won, a hard time dealing with the major problems in front of the nation. So how do you explain that is a giant question that has kept historians and biographers busy ever since. Do you believe that he could have won the nomination and won re-election in 68? That he probably could have won the nomination. I mean, clearly it would have been a brutal fight, I think, with Bobby Kennedy. Let's assume Bobby Kennedy, you know, stayed to, to play out this counterfactual. Sure. Um, I think that um, that would have been an ugly, brutal duel between two men who certainly didn't like each other very much, but by 1968 represented very different currents in American life. Um with LB, with Bobby Kennedy's assassination, you know clearly the the path would have been clearer for Lyndon Johnson to get the the nomination. But Hubert Humphrey, by that point, who was LBJ's heir, um, of course, was was the figure who um, you know benefited in a, in a certain way from uh, from the removal of of the most formidable figure, Bobby Kennedy, from from the race. I I, I think. Um, LBJ probably could have gotten the nomination. Whether he could have won the presidency is, of course, another big counterfactual there. I tend to think no, because I think the the presidency was so compromised by Vietnam, but also by the apparent breakdown of law and order in the United States that the uh, Nixon candidacy was going to be able to prevail over LBJ just as it prevailed over Hubert Humphrey. The reason I asked the question is I've had a couple of guests on who are experts or at least uh, involved in the either actually or as historian one of them previous guest now deceased is mike riley and mike ran the rfk campaign here in indianapolis or ran it here in indiana and i asked him you know do you think rfk would have won the whole thing he says yes absolutely we would have won the nomination and we would have you know of course all democrats think they would have destroyed nixon i get that yeah Uh, and then uh, i think she jeff Cecil, a terrific historian said the same thing and i've had other historians who said you know you had to have been alive during that period to understand what rfk 
was mm. about the electricity that surrounded him. Yeah. That, that seems right to me, you know, assuming that Bobby Kennedy, uh, you know, um, was, was of course not assassinated in the, in the, in June of that year and the election that the, 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 the nomination campaign played out across the remainder of the year. It's easy to see, that he would have won that competition with Hubert Humphrey or maybe even with LBJ. It would have been a maybe a squeaker. It would have been brutal. It would have been ugly. But I think it's reasonable to assume that Bobby Kennedy could have come out on top. And then it seems to me he was probably the one Democrat who really could have um, uh, defeated um, Nixon because of exactly what you were just alluding to, the, the kind of electricity that he inspired um, in the in the American public, I think. Humphrey, LBJ himself, other possible contenders probably would have been so tainted by, by Vietnam that um, they would have been much um, uh, uh, easier for, for Nixon to contend with. Reading about the 60s, and I want to kind of get through as much as we can quickly about how Lyndon Johnson got on the ticket in 1960 with, with John F. Kennedy. But reading about the 60s in the political figures that were in the ascendant or in power. I don't know. I mean, I guess I don't want to overstate it because you've got like, you know, the 1800s or whatever, but to have Kennedy and Nixon and Humphrey and Johnson and Robert Kennedy and Dirksen and Richard Russell, these ter- this cadre Fulbright, the list goes on and on yeah. Birch by our own Indiana's Birch by was just a, a monumental decade for political, I get to say political hacks and political lovers <laughs> and political animals. Yeah. But is that one of the things that drew you to this time period? I uh, no question. I think that, you know, the 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 big names of American politics, many of whose names you just mentioned, um, were at their the height of their powers in the 1960s. And it's a, a fascinating period when all of these these giants, you know, were were duking it out with one another at a time of very rapid social change. So the, you know, the political landscape within which these characters had to operate was changing very rapidly across the middle years of the 1960s. And that too makes it so fascinating, right? Um, um, the, the, the kind of um, back and forth between the political positioning of these giant figures and the ever, you know, the constantly changing political context makes this, you know, a period that political historians will never get tired of, of writing about. Did Lyndon Johnson, like, like many of his predecessors in the Oval Office and his contemporaries in, in postbellum American politics, did he get the political bug early? Yeah. Really early. I think every biographer would agree on this. You know, LBJ's father was a member of the Texas state legislature. He served five five terms, not consecutively, but those terms were scattered across LBJ's early life. And so LBJ had a front row seat to politics, very intense kind of politics um, on uh, the, the local level. And he was able to travel with his father from the Texas Hill Country where he grew up to watch the legislature in action. You know, he was born about an hour and well, by modern standards, an hour and a quarter or so drive west of 
of Austin. So that was well within reach of Austin. So he could see what politics looked like when it was practiced off the front porch of his of his father's house. And he could see what it looked like when the legislature came together in Austin. And it seems to have made a really profound impact on the young LBJ. He was also a teacher. Yeah. He went and taught uh, migrants or Hispanic kids, uh, which was pretty rare for him, for anyone to do back then. Yeah. Eventually graduated from college after kind of a circuitous route, to say the least. He served in World War II. Uh, do you? Uh, he served in in the Navy in World War II. Um, he famously or infamously uh, received a silver star from General uh, Douglas MacArthur. Silver star is the third highest medal for bravery in the United wow. States military. Um, did he deserve it? Yes or no? <laughs> you know, I'm going to say no, because I think even he himself would have uh, would, would have uh, if really forced to answer <laughs> in the way that you just posed the question. Uh, you know, there supposedly, you know, he, he was always a little embarrassed about the whole thing. And that said, of course, he did wear the, the, the little insignia on his lapel for he wore the lapel pin. Yeah. Yeah. For, you know, I won't say all the time, but. But a lot of the time thereafter. So I think he was probably conflicted about it. He understood that people who had done a lot more heroic things than he did did not get the Silver Star. But he also understood that it was good politics to be associated with, you know, the heroism of the Second World War and to be able to tell your constituents that you you too had risked your life for the nation. The 30s and 40s, I think it's fair to say, formative years even as an adult, he gets into politics, wins more than he loses. What did the early years, besides, I think, the dispositive event of of becoming acquaintances or, let's say, an ally of President Franklin Roosevelt, right? what did these formative years mean for Lyndon Johnson as he progressed through his political yeah. career? You know, I think what really jumps out at me about the early years of LBJ's political career is just how effective a politician he was. And of course, when you're talking about the early years, you're mostly talking about his years in the House of, of Representatives. He, 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 were, he did so many things so well to become a successful politician. One thing he did well, you've just mentioned this, is that he cozied up to the most powerful people around him, often older men who had much more power than he did. Not, you know, no more striking example of this, of course, than Franklin Roosevelt himself. I think he also got very, very good very quickly at pulling the levers of power in Washington to bring resources back to his home district. Um, it's sometimes been claimed about LBJ that he was one of the very most effective members of the whole House of Representatives in bringing federal largesse back to his his district and you know sometimes this meant electrification in 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 uh, his own hill country where electrification was a new thing in the 1930s um sometimes it meant bringing military bases back to uh Texas um during the 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 big build up around the the second world war but however he was doing it he got very very good at that. He also got very, very good at fundraising. Um, he was he he developed very constructive relationships with very wealthy 
um, people in, in Texas, some of whom didn't come close to sharing his liberal politics, but he was very, very good at finding money and using that money um, to promote his own name within Democratic Party circles. So he became quite skilled at distributing uh, money that he helped to raise to other candidates for office from Texas, or increasingly as time passed, from around the whole country. And this was, of course, a great way to build a network of friends and allies in high places. He also benefited from the fact that, at least for the first, and you correct me, please, the first two terms of Franklin Roosevelt's presidency, his vice president was John Nance Garner, mm-hmm. who was from Uvalde, Texas. Texas. Yes. <laughs> and the Speaker of the House was Sam Rayburn, who was from. <laughs> <laughs> you see the pattern. <laughs> That's right. So how much did those you talked about him, yeah. you know, cozying up or yeah. or being seen as a loyal ally of, of yes. people in power? But, you know, so much like what he did for John Connolly later yeah. on, these men did for him. How important yeah. were uh, Garner and Rayburn to Lyndon Johnson's early career? Certainly Rayburn was very, very important. I think, you know, Rayburn saw in LBJ a very energetic young member of Congress for whom the sky was the limit. And he, you know, cultivated that friendship. He became very close to Lyndon Johnson's wife, Lady Bird Johnson, ultimately the the first lady. There was a real sense of personal warmth there, in addition to political calculation that drew these, these two men together. Garner, I think, less so. Um, but of course, the relationship between Franklin Roosevelt and Garner wasn't always the smoothest. And I think um, <laughs> LBJ understood that um, his his loyalty was best placed alongside the, the president. Uh, but but Rayburn, without question, and so Rayburn was really you know one of let's say half a dozen more senior men who served as mentors and. Um, and and, um, almost father figures for the young Lyndon Johnson. Franklin Roosevelt maybe was in that category, certainly Rayburn, ultimately Richard Russell, the very powerful Dixiecrat senator from Georgia. These were figures who were very, very important to LBJ. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest is Mark Lawrence. He is the director of the Lyndon Baines Johnson Presidential Library and Museum in Austin, Texas. It's interesting that for someone who actually won a tremendous landslide in 1964, the nickname "Landslide Linden" was a bit of a uh, a bit of a joke that he adopted as a compliment. Uh, please tell the Leaders and Legends <laughs> podcast audience the origination of the nickname yeah. "Landslide Linden." Well, this came from 1948 when uh, LBJ had the opportunity to run for a Senate seat by the really by the late 1930s. He was growing a little bit tired of the House. He wanted to be in the Senate where he felt like his his talents um, would be would be better, better placed and where he could have more impact and and amass more power and influence. Um, So he tried in 1941 and failed. And in a nutshell, the reason why he failed is that his opponent was better at vote stealing than LBJ was. Um, And this is nothing (laughs) against Lyndon Johnson or against his rival. This is simply the way politics was done in that era. Um, 
LBJ had another opportunity, as I said, in 1948. And in this case, LBJ had learned his lessons from his failed attempt in 1941 and was very sophisticated in his approach to to vote stealing, to manipulating machine politics, which was a fact of life all over Texas. And we now know, I think, beyond a shadow of a doubt that um, there were some shenanigans, especially down in the Rio Grande Valley, that resulted in um, an an election that was swung LBJ's way by the discovery at the last minute, let's say, of (laughs) a few hundred additional, additional ballots. And LBJ was uh, was was teased for this by being dubbed landslide Lyndon. And as you say, LBJ seems to have embraced that almost as a badge of honor. Would it be fair to, to assert that if Lyndon Johnson hadn't stolen the election from Coke Stevenson, his uh, opponent in 1948, that yeah. Coke Stevenson would have stolen the election from Lyndon Johnson. <laughs> I, mean, I think that's probably true. You know, vote stealing, kind of manipulation of machine politics, block vote, all of these practices were so widespread that once you really get under the hood and start to try to determine who was more at fault, it becomes very difficult very, very quickly. So I'm not sure that, you know, for all the ink that's ever that's been spilled over the the 1948 election, ultimately, where a reasonable person would want to place the blame for the more, the more egregious uh, forms of of um, of, of uh, ma- you know, political malpractice. But I think it's certainly sa- safe to say that if LBJ hadn't uh, behaved in this way, he would have been but defeated by someone who was behaving that way. And the first time he ran for the Senate was when? 42? In 1941. 41. He runs for the Senate. He loses. Right. And the argument is he lost because his campaign manager, John Conley, who ended mm-hmm. up being governor of Texas, uh, reported their votes too soon. So the yeah. other side knew how many votes they needed to, quote unquote, procure yeah. to best Johnson's total. That's right. The the lesson. um the most important lesson LBJ learned from 1941 was don't count your votes too soon. <laughs> you want to be the last person to count, not not the first person to declare how many you got. Did these vote? We're going to jump ahead just one second because yeah. I want to make sure that I ask this question. Did the these election shenanigans, these these this fraudulent votes, you know, kind of a wink and a nod in some places, but vote stealing vote suppression in other places, especially in the South, were kind of like no joking matter. Did Lyndon Johnson go back to his time as quote unquote landside Lyndon as he's as he's shepherding things like bills like the Voting Rights Act? Like, you know, hey, that's the way we used to do it back in the day in the 40s, but it's a different era now. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm not aware of any particular instances where LBJ talked explicitly about this. It's true, of course, that, you know, he sort of embraced the landslide Linden um, moniker, and he was certainly well aware of the controversy uh, around the 1948 election. But um, I'm not aware of any occasion where he really kind of came clean about all this or talked about it in any great detail. Uh, what is striking, I think, is what your question was alluding to. You know, if you fast forward a few years from 1948, you can see that LBJ was very sincerely transformed into 
um, a great champion of voting rights. I think he, so. You know, if we connect the dots, I think it's probably fair to conclude that he was troubled by you know the the political realities of the 1930s and and 1940s, particularly in connection with the ways in which. Um, non-white Americans were manipulated through this process. So the Voting Rights Act of 1965, I think, stands as, you know, maybe the the, the greatest accomplishment of the Johnson presidency and maybe, um, you know, helps us to, to see that over the long course of his career, he was able to think critically about some of the practices that had been so widespread in his early political career. Lyndon Johnson's, I would say, best known biographers, Robert Caro and Robert Dalek, both assert that Johnson was the most effective Senate majority leader in American history. Do you agree? Yeah, I think I do. Um, you know, I, I will confess, maybe I don't know enough about the early 19th century to make a definitive judgment. You know, there, there was Henry Clay and Daniel Webster and, you know, other great figures from that period who might give LBJ sure. a run for his money. But I think, you know, but, I, but yes, I think is the short answer to your question. L, LBJ made the Senate run as no one had, maybe ever, maybe not in 100 years um, by the time he was uh, majority leader in the in the 1950s. 1960. As a Republican, I will confess that my party does sometimes a lousy job of choosing running mates for their presidential candidates. In 1960, Richard Nixon chose Henry Cabot Lodge, who, although represented the New England Republican establishment, had gotten thumped by John F. Kennedy in the Senate race just a few years before. John F. Kennedy chooses Lyndon Johnson. Tell us, please, why Kennedy chose Johnson and why Johnson accepted, because they were clearly bitter rivals. I think that would be overstating it, but but political and ambitious rivals. Yeah. And it's great that you're distinguishing those two questions because they're very important to consider separately. I think JFK chose LBJ for for two reasons. Um, one is that LBJ was this very powerful figure um, who was, you know, uh, very well known. He had great, you know, name recognition. His, his picture had been on the cover of Time magazine, and you know, he was understood to be a very, very effective politician. But at the same time, and I think maybe even more important, Lyndon Johnson came from Texas, and John F. Kennedy. The Northeastern elite, maybe not as liberal as sometimes we think, but nevertheless was understood to be a liberal within the, the spectrum of the party, really needed someone who was a Southerner and who was believed at least to be a relatively conservative uh, figure who could keep the Dem keep the Dixiecrats uh, on sides and, and you know encourage them to vote for the Democratic ticket. Um, so I think those were the, the two key reasons why LBJ chose it is an interesting question. After all, this man had accumulated so much power and influence in the 1950s. One might ask, why did he want to become vice president, right? A, a position that many people have said over the decades and centuries, you know, is is um, is, is just <laughs> kind of a second tier job at best. right? What did, what did but, Garner call it? Bucket of warm spit or <laughs> warm something. <laughs> Um, 
And, you know, I, I think the, the answer to that question, there are probably several good answers to that question, but one of the most important is that um, LBJ must have understood that um, if, if Kennedy won, he was going to be much less dependent on the Democratic leadership in Congress. After all, he would be this young, dynamic new president, and he wouldn't need um, strong allies and supporters in Congress in quite the way uh, Dwight Eisenhower had. And that's very important to this story. Eisenhower, the Republican, made common cause with Lyndon Johnson, the Democrat, on so many issues. But you know, LBJ was really able to thrive in that context and to constantly demonstrate that he was really important to the Eisenhower administration. He might have concluded very readily that in a Kennedy administration, it would be um, he would be much less valuable um, in in that role. He probably also, I mean, some biographers would lean on this more heavily than others, but may well have concluded that the only path for Lyndon Johnson to make it to the presidency would be via the vice presidency. Um, and um, you know, he probably, I would imagine, in 1960, he thought his odds were were pretty tiny. Um, of ever getting to the presidency, but if there was one path, it was via that that second position. Why would you Why would you say that he would think that his odds were tiny? Mostly because let's remember, you know, no dem, no Southerner, with the you know, kind of partial exception of Woodrow Wilson, had been president in generations. And though times were changing by the 1950s and 1960s. It was still really hard for most American political commentators to imagine that a Southerner could win the presidency in in his own right. Um, you know that 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 part of the country, and certainly Democrats who represented that part of the country, were seen increasingly as hopelessly backward, right? As as wedded to right. Dixiecrats. Policies that and practices that you know most of the nation was moving on from. Um, so it was you know it, it was unimaginable, I think, to most Americans that a Southerner could could break through. And Lyndon Johnson must have um, you know been keenly aware of, of of those factors. You're listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by. Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest today is Mark Lawrence. He is the director of the LBJ Presidential Library and Museum in Austin, Texas. We are talking uh, in as much depth as we can with our time together about the 36th president of the United States. Johnson, as you were talked about a few minutes ago, was used to not only being wielding power, but being feared for the power that he wielded. Then he goes into the vice presidency. And would you say that time period was a struggle for him because not only did he have diminished power, he had clearly one implacable foe and that is attorney general, Robert F. Kennedy, brother of the president. How did Johnson 
subsume himself, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. in order to be both loyal but retain relevance? It was a struggle. It was a, a real battle, I think, for LBJ. This was, in many ways, a real low point of LBJ's political career. I mean, yes, he was now vice president of the United States, but he was consistently sidelines um, from, you know, from the important decisions in the the Kennedy White House. And you know, I think I think JFK had a degree of respect for Lyndon Johnson and valued his opinion about certain things, but JFK didn't go too far out of his way to consult Lyndon. Um, but the biggest opponent, I think, of a important role for Lyndon Johnson, exactly as you say, was the Attorney General, uh, JFK's brother Bobby Kennedy. And the feud between the two, of course, went back many years before 1960. But you know, here was Bobby Kennedy's opportunity now as the right hand man of the President of the United States, really to make sure that um, this Texan that Bobby really uh, despised was not given an important place in the administration. Because one of the things that you read about Lyndon Johnson throughout his life, which perhaps was a foundation of the clash between him and and the Hyannisport crowd, was the fact that Lyndon Johnson was unabashedly outrageous. He was coarse. He was profane. He was, you know, he like to have a girlfriend every now and then. Yeah. But he was very coarse. There's a famous picture where um, in the background where John F. Kennedy's trying to like get Lyndon's attention to get him to calm down because Johnson's yelling at some helicopter. I think it was a helicopter (laughs) and it's interrupting things and Johnson's screaming. And in the background, you could see, I think he wasn't president. Maybe I don't remember. I don't think so. I thought they were just campaigning. John Kennedy's reaching out to him like, calm down. It's okay. It's no big deal. (laughs) But Lyndon represented the coarseness of the Western Mm -hmm. man. Yeah, I think that's true. You know, I I think that these two characters, Bobby Kennedy and LBJ, came from such different backgrounds and had such different personalities. Um, and, And no doubt recognizing those differences helps us in part to understand why these two men disliked each other so much. I will say, though, that I think there's also something to the exact opposite argument, that in fact, at the end of the day, these two characters were very much alike. Yes, they spoke differently. They had different cultural norms and and, and so forth, but they were both very ambitious men. Um, they were both very... Um, skilled um, operators in in political life and in uh, the federal bureaucracy. They were both sort of skilled, you know, knife fighters, I think, in in that world. Um, They both knew how to get what they wanted and how to manipulate other people. I mean, let's remember that Bobby Kennedy, you know, was JFK's campaign, um, chief campaign strategist, head head of JFK's campaign. Um, he was someone who really knew how to make things happen in the political world, just like LBJ did. They were kind of fighting in some ways for the same niche in in their own party and um, no doubt recognized in each other that though they may speak differently, they may use different vocabulary. They were um, they, they were very similar in a lot of ways as well. Would it be fair to say that Lyndon would have thought that he had to fight a hell of a lot harder and a lot longer? to get where he was than Bobby Kennedy, who was the son of one of the richest men in the world and went to Harvard and so on and so forth, that 
that there was a little bit of anti-snobbery on the part of LBJ? Probably so. Yeah, I mean, it it, it's, it has to be the case, right? That LBJ, this guy from the Hill Country who had experienced real poverty in his life, looked at someone like Bobby Kennedy, who was, um, you know, the right-hand man of the president of the United States with nothing on his resume really beyond being the brother of the president of the United <laughs> States to, to really recommend him. So it, it had to be part of their resentment as well. I don't think there's any question. November 22nd, 1963, in a trip to Texas, John F. Kennedy is assassinated. One of the previous guests on the Leaders and Legends podcast was Clint Hill, the Secret Service agent who climbed aboard the Kennedy limousine that day. How did Kennedy come to appear in Texas? And how would you describe Lyndon Johnson's actions that day after the assassination? Because people look at, at how he handled himself in very different ways. And some people praise and some people uh, are critical. To me, he deserves praise. Yeah. I mean, he was, yeah. it was an unspeakable situation. There's no game plan for it. But exactly. but how did, how do you rate Lyndon Johnson on that day? Yeah, I mean I think you're right. So to answer your first question very briefly, I mean, the 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 Democrats were in in a tricky spot when it came to holding Texas for the party as the 1964 race approached. The party was famously divided between two factions and was also slipping in increasingly in a conservative direction. So the Kennedy trip, in a nutshell, was designed to mend some of these uh, squabbles within the party and to show you know, interest at the highest levels of the party in the state in a way that it was hoped would have payoff um, a few months down the road as the 1964 um, election uh, 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 approached. LBJ's behavior on November 22nd, exactly as you said, I mean, this has been such a fiercely contested issue. It's revealing, I think, that one of the main sources for the negative view of LBJ's behavior was Bobby Kennedy, um, who really um, said some very nasty things about LBJ's behavior. Um, my, my own reading is, is maybe a little bit like yours, that um, in fact, LBJ did awfully well under very, very challenging circumstances. I think it's revealing that Robert Cairo, you mentioned probably LBJ's most famous um, and influential biographer, who is quite critical of LBJ in many places in, in his, his books about Johnson. Even he acknowledges that the aftermath of the assassination, not maybe not just that one day, but let's say the, the, the first week of LBJ's presidency was really LBJ at his very best. He struck the right balance between respecting the slain leader and also conveying a sense of reassurance and that he was now in charge and even hinting at his own agenda, building on JFK's, but also suggesting that you know he would be a strong and capable president in his own right. Now, I think that's right. I think that um, LBJ really did strike a a, a, the right balance in a very difficult uh, political moment. One of the most, one of the most criticized or a focus of criticism of Lyndon Johnson's actions that day 
was his insistence that first lady now former first lady Jacqueline Kennedy be next to him when he took the oath of office aboard Air Force One. I've read three or four books about it. I asked Clint Hill about it. You know, Lyndon Johnson's mind much better than I do. Why do you think it was important to him? And was it the right call? Yeah, I think it was important for him because he needed to have as much as possible buy-in from the Kennedy family. And no one was closer to the slain president than, of course, the first lady. So having her standing next to LBJ as he took the oath of office was a very important symbol that power had been uh, transferred constitutionally, peacefully, with the consent of all the parties involved. And um, I think that probably, I, I can personally very much understand LBJ's thinking, though it must have been a painful conversation to ask Mrs. Kennedy to pose in that photograph, in that photograph. He had good reason, I think, for um, wanting to send that message. And frankly, too, it seems to me no one would have understood that better than Jacqueline Kennedy, an extraordinarily politically savvy person in her own right. So um, I'm not sure that um, uh, there's much to the idea that she resisted that or you know thought it was in bad taste. Lyndon Johnson becomes president that day on November 22nd. His first year or so, year and a few months of his presidency, how much until his own reelect, his, his election, not reelection, but his election in 64, where he um, devastates Barry Goldwater. How would you grade that, that interim time period? Clearly the shadow of the slain president is there, but Lyndon Johnson uses and not in a bad way, but uses the legacy and the leadership of Kennedy really as the springboard for so much of what Lyndon Johnson himself wanted to do. I think that's right. LBJ understood that Kennedy's popularity had never been so high as it was in the fall of 1963. Um, Now he was a martyr, right? This is a very, very powerful um, thing to to harness himself and his administration to JFK. It was the obvious move to make, but I must say, to my eye, LBJ made it ex- in an extraordinarily deft way that, as I mentioned before, I think really struck just the right balance between respect for the slain leader, respect for his program, and at the same time, a, a, a an eagerness to build on that and to go beyond and to, um, you know, to, to um, develop a, a program that would honor the honored president Kennedy while, while also looking toward the future. Was there any doubt that Lyndon Johnson was going to run for president in his own right in 1964? I don't think so. I mean, LBJ, the more we learn about him, the more we learn, I think, how insecure he could be at times. And it's certainly true that in the run-up to the 64 race, there were moments where he had real self-doubt. Either he didn't believe that he could get elected, which seems pretty preposterous in retrospect, (laughs) um, or that you know maybe he just didn't want to do it. Maybe he didn't have the energy or his health wasn't good enough to do it. But I I think we should probably understand those moments as passing moments. And LBJ was prone to these. He, He was not the endlessly self-assured um, figure that I think sometimes we we think of when we think of Lyndon Johnson. He was a deeply insecure man who had moments of extreme self, self-doubt. 
but uh, those moments passed. And I think the the dominant motif of those months leading up to the 64 election was, you know, he was all in. And this was his big moment really to show that, you know, he, he was capable of rising to the very pinnacle of power. Where would you rank the domestic accomplishments of Lyndon Johnson, let's say during his second term, Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, Second Civil Rights Act? Yeah. Where would you rank them, just pure domestic uh, achievements uh, in relation to all the other presidents? I, I, Is I FDR would, the only one who comes close? I, yeah, exactly. I think you, you took the words out of my mouth. I, I think that only FDR really gives LBJ a, a run for his, for his money. Um, and in some ways, I think LBJ's accomplishments were more impressive because let's remember that when FDR got his, much of his domestic agenda passed, this was in the context of economic crisis. Congress was highly motivated, you know, to do what was necessary, what was felt to be necessary to fix a desperate economic situation. Everyone agreed that action was crucial. LBJ was by and large asking a very wealthy, very prosperous country to do even more. And it's true that um, public opinion was such in that moment that there was a lot of enthusiasm for doing that. So I don't want to suggest that LBJ was, you know, pushing back against against a lot of uh, of the American public that was reluctant to follow him. But still, you know, to, to motivate people to um, create oper- people who are by and large already enormously prosperous and enjoying um, unfathomable levels of opportunity to motivate people to make the necessary adjustments to American life to, sure, to assure that opportunity was even more fairly distributed across society. That that took, um, I think, a, a really impressive amount of um, of inspiration and leadership. Does Lyndon Johnson deserve the accolades he receives receives to this day for his role in the civil, second civil rights movement of the 50s, but most importantly in the 60s? I mean, you know, there's some um, pushback, to use the term you just said, among yeah. scholars, you know, that the white savior is always the one who gets the most attention, but it's, you know, John Lewis and the others who who have done uh, so much on the ground. But in this case, it does seem that Lyndon Johnson was committed to it and he wasn't committed to it for political purposes because he knew at the time that the Democratic Party would suffer in the South if his legislative agenda on civil rights was successful. Yeah, I think I think that's that's very true. He he understood that um, passing these these pieces of legislation could cost the party very dearly in the South. I think he hoped that that would not be the case. I don't think he was certain that that would be the outcome. I think that he hoped that empowering African-Americans to vote um, in combination with social change in the South that would lead to you know um, to, to more a more supportive population in terms of civil rights would give the Democratic Party something to hold on to and something to build on. I think what what actually happened turned out to be sort of the ultimate nightmare scenario for LBJ and the Democratic Party. But, that you know, that wouldn't become clear for some time, I think, that things were actually headed in that direction. 
Um, but, you know, I, I think there's no question that LBJ deserves an awful lot of credit for um, these these monumental legislative accomplishments. I, I agree that sometimes there's a tendency to indulge in the white savior idea. But, you know, I think LBJ himself was was aware of this. And in the famous speech he gave in March of 1965 after the adoption or in support of adoption of the Voting Rights Act, he says, you know, explicitly like, the hero of this story is the, the Black person who has been struggling for generations. I mean, he, I think he was maybe more than some commentators in the years since LBJ's life, um, you know, understood that the white liberal establishment was lending its support to an agenda that was already very clear to an awful lot of people and into which a lot of people had pumped their lives and sometimes given their lives uh, by that point. But, you know, it was really important in that moment to have the support of the federal government, of the executive branch on the side of, of those pieces of legislation. You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Mark Lawrence, director of the LBJ Presidential Library and Museum in Austin, Texas. We are discussing the life, legacy, and career of the 36th president of the United States. I remember as a kid reading a book called The People's Almanac. And it was just a bunch of goofy stories and surveys. I mean, it's... It serves no purpose other than 50 years later, you can recall something at a pub trivia contest. <laughs> right. And I always thought that in preparing for this podcast, the interesting dichotomy between Nixon and Lyndon Johnson in that in surveys in the mid 70s after Watergate, Nixon's popularity or positive rating when it came to foreign policy was through the roof, the best foreign policy president, you know, after World War II. Mm -hmm. And then domestically, his rating was awful. But it's the reverse for Lyndon Johnson. If it if not for Vietnam, he would Mm -hmm. be one of our greatest presidents. Did Lyndon Johnson was he he was painfully aware he was a history major, as I recall, in college. So he enjoyed history and was aware of it. Was he aware of what Vietnam was doing to his personal and presidential legacy? I think he was as time passed. Yes. I think in 1964 and 1965, he really hoped that he would be able to handle the Vietnam problem without it really dragging down his administration and ultimately his reputation. He was wrong, though. He was not able to pull that off. By 1966, 7, 8, of course, he, the, the United States, was in so deep in Vietnam that there was no easy path to dial it back and, and disengage from, from Vietnam. So, um, you know, I think his his efforts early on to limit the damage really failed. And after that point, you know, he, he really just had to confront that this was a major drag on his on his the viability of his his domestic agenda and probably of his standing with historians and, and all of us ever. You mentioned that he thought he could figure it out. We started the podcast. One of the things that comes through is, is the frustration that he can't figure it out. Hey, why do you think he thought he could and B why was he unable to? Yeah. You know, I, I think that, It's important to 
think ourselves back in into the period in American history from the late 1950s down through the mid-1960s, when almost every problem seemed solvable to Americans. I mean, after all, the United States had only recently sent 16 million Americans off to fight on multiple theaters around the world. The United States had led the way in all these remarkable technological breakthroughs in the middle years of the the 20th century. The United States had built global networks of alliances and had, you know, the world's most formidable military, had led the way with the development of a whole new generation of weapons with, I'm speaking, of course, about nuclear weapons. So I, I think that Lyndon Johnson was very typical of his moment in believing that there was no problem that the United States, with the right mix of goodwill and resources and, and political um, uh, determination, couldn't couldn't solve. And he was well aware that Vietnam was a really difficult problem. But I think that at the end of the day, he believed that it was a problem that the United States could solve. And of course, he turned out to be wrong about that. Did he believe in the domino theory? And if so, how did that influence his decision making? I think he did believe in the domino theory. Yes, I think he believed that. And he, you know, he said so enough that we should take him, I think, at face value that if Vietnam fell, um, Laos and Cambodia and Thailand and Indonesia and all the rest would would fall as as well. Um, I think he believed that American credibility was at stake in Vietnam, not just in those contiguous areas, but really all over the world. He worried, you know, what would they say in Pakistan or Australia or even London or Bonn if the United States was seen as not living up to its obligations in a place like, like Vietnam? So yes, and in this respect, I think he was for all the imagination and creativity that he brought to bear in the domestic arena was pretty unimaginative when it came to foreign policy. He bought relatively readily into the the common, sort of common assumptions about the Cold War, very much including the domino idea. Was there a point in time, or could you maybe give us one or two in your view? No. You read about these these disasters, whether they're, you know, the the driver of Archduke Ferdinand not knowing how to get to the hospital, yeah. you know, from the previous assassination attempt and literally right past stopping in front of Gavrilo Princip, who had forgot, <laughs> who had basically said, I'm done. I'm not messing with this the rest right. of the day right. or Watergate. We were like, yeah. Jesus, President Nixon, just cut these clowns. What are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> When you read about these tragedies, uh, yeah. you, you wonder about how really, really smart men can be sucked into them. And is there a watershed event or time yeah. when things could have turned out different? Is there one of yeah. those for Lyndon Johnson and Vietnam? Yeah, it's a it's a fantastic question and one I spent a lot of time thinking about. I do think there the 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 best candidates for those moments when things might have gone differently are in earlier years in the 1940s or 1950s but you're asking specifically about the LBJ period and i think it was it, it was very it would have been extremely difficult for LBJ to take the off ramps and um you know find alternatives to escalation 
um, if the alternative looked like defeat or looked like falling short of American objectives. But I, I do think that the one moment that we can think about in these terms is in the immediate aftermath of the 1964 election. So things were not going well in Vietnam. Publicly, LBJ and a lot of his advisors said things were fine, you know, if it were headed in the right direction, but they knew very well that it was a it was a real mess. Um, and they also knew they had just scored one of the biggest political victories in American history. So there was a good argument. In fact, Hubert Humphrey, LBJ's vice president, made this argument in February of 1965, just after the election, that it's going to be painful, but now is your moment of maximum political opportunity to find some sort of fig leaf solution, some sort of negotiated agreement that would enable the United States to kind of declare victory or to declare at least some of its objectives had been met, cut a deal with the North Vietnamese and maybe with the Chinese and the Soviets coming on board as well, and get out. Um, even if it meant that over time, you know, Vietnam would fall under the control of a of a communistic uh, sort of government. I think that that's that's the one. Um, scenario that it's just possible to imagine. Um, and it's meaningful, I think, that no less a figure than the vice president of the United States actually thought that that's what uh, his boss should have done. And there were other figures in Congress or in the in the administration who had similar ideas that painful though it would be, the United States needed to cut its losses or it was going to be saddled with the fiasco that the war actually did become. How would you describe the Gulf of Tonkin incident now, and then yeah. forget what we know now, but <laughs> when it happened, was it 64 yeah. fall or summer of 64? Yeah. How did that influence Lyndon Johnson's thinking the Maddox and the Turner joy are quote unquote yeah. attacked by yeah. North Vietnamese yeah. uh, to a, to a six foot four Texan. Yeah. How important was it to appear strong? Yeah. Um, well, you're exactly. So you're you're very right to, um, to 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 raise the exact timing of the Gulf of Tonkin episode. So it was the first week of August 1964, and this is what this is two months before the presidential election of 1964. And a point that many historians have made made over the years. I think it's exactly right. Is that LBJ really needed to show the American people that he could be tough, he could be strong, he could be determined in foreign policy. He's running, of course, against Barry Goldwater, someone who is super outspoken about national security. Um, LBJ, it is often claimed, I think this is right, really needed to um, close down the critique of him as weak or, you know, as the can as as the candidate for office who was not particularly reliable when it came to waging the Cold War with determination. So along in, in early August 1964 come these attacks, as it was understood at the time, on US warships operating off the coast of Vietnam. And LBJ, it seems to me, jumps on this as an opportunity to order airstrikes against the Vietnamese coast to show that he is in control of the situation, to show that he can use force. Um, but also that he can use force in a restrained way, in a in a focused way that would maybe show the American people not only that he was a reliable custodian of foreign policy, but also that he was the more measured and careful user of American force in contrast to the, you know, as, as the Democrat, 
as the Democrats wanted the Americans to see it at the time, kind of crazy you know, guy who was, was way off the deep end when it came to waging the Cold War. So the, the Gulf of Tonkin episodes, I think, should be understood as as part as, as really deeply inter- intertwined with um, a political strategy um, that uh, uh, was very important to LBJ's campaign. If you in 1964 were the political campaign director for Lyndon Johnson for president, would you have green lit the Daisy ad? <laughs> um, yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, I think that, you know, the, the campaign knew who they were running against, right? And Barry Goldwater was seen as you know pretty far out there in in um in in terms of American national security. He was seen as someone with a, a, a tr- you know itchy trigger finger when it came to the use of American nuclear weapons, who spoke in really blunt to many Americans scary ways about Vietnam and, and his determination to escalate. So calling attention to that was good politics, I think, in that moment. Maybe that ad went a little bit too far. You know, it was a little bit too crass, a little bit too blunt in its messaging. But the message was certainly one that I think we could say with the benefit of hindsight, the the Johnson campaign knew probably would work to their advantage. I encourage everyone to just Google (laughs) Daisy ad and you will see what Professor Lawrence and I are discussing. (laughs) To me, one of the most interesting relationships of the post-World War II era in American politics, and I wish somebody would write a book about this, mm-hmm. is, is the relationship between Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon. Yeah. To me, they're the almost exact same person in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, am I far off there? And what do you think of, of their relationship and their co- sort of scorpion-like dance? <laughs> Yeah, I, I think you're onto something. They were similar, similar characters in some ways. I, Nixon I guess came I, from nothing. Yeah, served yeah. in the Navy in the Pacific. It's true. Uh, yeah. Was vice president. Uh, yeah, certainly had his share of, of setbacks, but thought yeah. politics was a contact sport, much like Lyndon Johnson. I mean, these were all things they had yeah. in common. And I always just it's, thought that yeah. whenever you you read something about the two of them interacting, it's it's particularly fascinating to me. Yeah, I think you're right. They were political pragmatists. Um, you know, I, a, a distinction between the two I might draw would be to say that I think LBJ had a little bit more of a principled core. I do think that you can see across LBJ's career a dedication to certain issues that would come full flower when he became president and had the opportunity to act on some of the goals that had really sat in his head for a long time by that point. With Nixon, I think it's it's harder to see that. I think the, the level of cynicism was more extreme in connection with Nixon. But by and large, I think you're onto something in um, suggesting that the the points of similarity are are fascinating to, to think about. But Johnson was looking for a way out of the interminable 
civil rights strife, racial strife. He has to yeah. come. We have to come up with a new way. It has to be done differently, not only because the United States needs to see it, but because the world needs to see it in the context mm-hmm. of of both the United States as uh, a superpower fighting against you know the Soviet Union, and you know yeah. we how can we bitch about what's going on in Poland and East Germany when it's happening in Selma and Birmingham and places yeah. like that. And Nixon was looking for a way out of mutual assured destruction. There's got to be a different way to handle it. And that's where I think that they're outside the box thinking on mm-hmm. one domestic and the other foreign policy really illuminates them as both politicians, but you said it at best, pragmatists. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I suppose, you know, that they, they did run political risks and really take Im- impressive stands in the arenas that mattered most to them, LBJ in the arena, the domestic arena, but especially in connection with race and uh, Nixon, as you've said, in connection with with foreign policy, that's a that's a that's an interesting point. And um, you know, I think both of them had more support and than sometimes the heroic um depictions of our presidents would tend to lead us to to believe presidents after all don't do these things by themselves um and lbj had an awful lot of support for some of the things he's given credit for just as the opening to china and and some of the other foreign policy successes of nixon you know had a lot of support as well but it's it's certainly true that at the end of the day they were the ones sitting in the oval office and would have to absorb the political costs if things went went wrong. So um, they, they probably both deserve their um, their due credit in those arenas. We have a few minutes left with Mark Lawrence. We're discussing the presidency, legacy, and historical reputation of Lyndon Baines Johnson. The 1968 election. Could you have predicted it? Could Lyndon Johnson and all his uh, political sagacity have predicted what happened in 68 based on what happened in 64 and i watched an interview with walter mondale who i would man i wish i'd I'd loved to have had him on the podcast Uh, and they were asked he was asked a question did he think lyndon johnson supported hubert humphrey in 68 and mondale's response was i think so maybe (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> sounds about right <laughs> possibly uh, yeah yeah what were johnson's thoughts the assassination of martin luther king in april the assassination yeah. of robert kennedy in in june about yeah. the year 1968 in that election did he see everything that he had built everything he tried to accomplish becoming undone the race riots the list goes on and on yeah um i i gotta believe he you know, he he was frustrated. He was angry. He was he felt increasingly isolated as 1968 advanced. As you've said, go back to November of 1964 when he was riding high and seemed to have virtually the entire country behind him. And then in 1968, so much of the American political spectrum, including people who had strongly supported him in 1964, had shifted away, maybe abandoned him completely. And I think LBJ understandably felt abandoned largely over Vietnam, but maybe over other issues as well by people who had once um, 
said that they were strong supporters. So he, he certainly felt a sense of um, of of anger and betrayal. Even I don't think is too strong a word. Um, some of that was directed at Republicans, I think, but an awful lot of it. And this gets to your question, I think, was directed at his fellow Democrats. Um, where he looked around the halls of Congress and saw so many people who were willing to support him when, as he would have said it, the going was good. And then when things got tough in Vietnam, you know, a lot of those folks abandoned him sometimes for Bobby Kennedy's campaign or, um, uh, uh, and, 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 and sometimes not, but, um, Hubert Humphrey, I think, uh, was one of those figures who LBJ had strongly mixed feelings about. I mean, undeniably, he was the standard bearer for the Democratic Party in 1968. He was, in many ways, the heir of the Johnson presidency. He was the candidate, especially on Vietnam, whose policies resembled LBJ's most directly compared to Bobby Kennedy or Eugene McCarthy and so forth. But LBJ was was really angry, I think, about Humphrey and what what LBJ had seen as a as a, a sense of betrayal. Uh, he he believed, and I think rightly, that Humphrey had really been bridling against LBJ across 1968, and really wanted to kind of set out on his own and take a more critical posture with respect to the administration's policies on the war. I, like Walter Mondale, I, I I think I would say that LBJ didn't go quite as far as actually even even in the privacy of his own mind supporting Richard Nixon. But I think his support for Hubert Humphrey was very lukewarm. There's no question he could have done a lot more for Hubert Humphrey. And Humphrey gave a speech. I think is it in Salt Lake City where he mm-hmm. says he would do a bombing halt. Mm-hmm. And then towards the end of October right. in '68, Johnson okay. announces the bombing halt. Yep. sends the Nixon campaign into a frenzy. Yep. There's been a lot written about Johnson, Nixon, Anna Chenault, yep. the South Vietnamese. Do you have a take on that? You know, I, I do. I, so the Anna Chenault affair, of course, refers to the contacts between the Nixon campaign on the one side and South Vietnamese authorities on the other. And what we now know is that the Nixon campaign was sending the message that the South Vietnamese government should not agree to anything because they would get a better deal um, under a Nixon presidency. And of course, all this was motivated by the Nixon campaign's feeling that a last minute breakthrough on the war that seemed to suggest that peace was at hand would work strongly in, in Humphrey's favor. I mean, we, we now have pretty ironclad evidence that these contacts were a real thing. Um, it's pretty clear, it seems to me, that Nixon crossed the line into illegal, or his, his campaign at least, crossed the line into um, illegal activity. I mean, it's against the law, right, as a private citizen to conduct uh, negotiations with foreign governments, and there's a good reason for that. So I, th- I think this episode tells you a lot about Nixon and about the Nixon campaign, I'm not sure that it really made a difference, though, in the history of the Vietnam War. I think that the South Vietnamese did not need Richard Nixon or Anna Chenault to tell them that they you know, should hold out for a different kind of deal. Under Which is what Nixon thought. Exactly. Like it's it's yeah. self-evident. Like, of exactly. course, you're going to get a better deal from us than the Johnson yeah. or the Humphrey administration. You don't have to do anything illicit to figure that out. Yeah. How yeah. much of this of the Chenault affair do you think was motivated by the fact that Nixon and many people? Mm-hmm 
consider the 1960 election stolen, not only what happened in Illinois, but mm-hmm. also what happened in the uh, in the Texas heartland during the 1960, where, quote unquote, they had the cattle voting. <laughs> Do you think he is, Nixon was motivated by, look, they're not going to steal this election from me yeah. again. I'm going to do whatever it takes. Uh, I mean, it stands to reason that, you know, that that would have crossed his mind. I think that's that's uh, that's fair. I mean, I think that Nix, how could he have not have, you know, carried grudges, carried carried resentments across his um, across his life after the the 1960 race. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think I would attach more importance to the idea that bugging one's opponents, working out of public view to sabotage, you know, the, the, your political rivals. This was, if not exactly the everyday business of American politics in the middle parts of the 20th century, you know, it, it, it was definitely part of what qualified as, you know, as fair game, as, as fair game. Exactly. I mean, look at, look at, you know, since Watergate, I think a lot of us have the idea that how, how could you possibly, you know, tape your 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 rivals or install, but but this was done all the time by Republicans and by Democrats and um, LBJ. You know, we now know his administration bugged political opponents or or other people who they had reason to um, su- suspect. I think what happened between the mid nineteen sixties and let's say the mid nineteen seventies is that. The American political landscape changed dramatically in ways that made it much less acceptable to the American public that these kinds of behaviors would be tolerated. And maybe Nixon's greatest sin was not to see that times really were a changing, uh, partly as a result of the Vietnam War and the much higher levels of media scrutiny of behavior that 10 or 15 years earlier would have simply been taken in stride. The, the, the now forgotten phrase of credibility gap. Yeah, that plagued both Johnson and Nixon. Yeah, Johnson had a very short retirement after war after his uh, second term. Yeah, he died, I believe, in January of seventy three. Very quickly, how did he how did he spend his retirement other than yeah. uh, growing his hair long? Yeah. You know, as with so many parts of Lyndon Johnson's life, there are conflicting opinions. I think <laughs> broadly, there are people who would say. You know, LBJ finally had a chance to, you know, literally let his hair down and spend time with his children, his grandchildren, and enjoy the the LBJ ranch where he, for the most part, lived. Um, and then there are other people who say that, you know, he spent those last four years deeply resentful, brooding over the the, the problems and, and failures of his presidency and resenting his his rivals and and his one time. Friends, and you know, I I think that in in my view, both of these ways of thinking about LBJ's last four years are are probably right. I mean, he was a complicated guy, who um, a famously complicated guy, who was certainly capable of thinking different things and acting different ways on on different days. Why should we expect him to have behaved differently in retirement? I think there were times when he probably was really demoralized and distressed and resentful toward people he believed had let him down. And there were other times in which he probably really truly enjoyed just being free of the craziness of being president of the United States and the burdens that had worn on him so visibly across those years. And, you know, he loved his dogs and he spent a lot of time with his grandchildren. All of that is true. So I think it's a little bit of both. 
Washington, Lincoln, Jefferson, and Theodore Roosevelt are our national Mount Rushmore. If they were to make another one, would you put <laughs> Lyndon Johnson on it? I mean, my 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 answer is no. Um, I think that Lyndon Johnson accomplished extraordinarily important milestones in American history, put his name to so many transformative pieces of legislation. And all of that makes him absolutely, without question, one of the most consequential presidents in all of American history. But I think that at the end of the day, presidents have a higher degree of authority over foreign policy than they do over domestic policy, Mm -hmm. where they really share influence with Congress to a higher degree. And it's in that foreign policy realm where LBJ's biggest failures came. And unfortunately for LBJ's reputation came in the form of a lost war that cost tens of thousands of lives of Americans and millions of of lives of Vietnamese. Um, I don't think we should be excessively critical of him. A lot of other people would have made the same decisions that, that he made. But the fact of the matter is that those decisions did not work out well. He had alternatives to do otherwise and let those opportunities pass. So I think we would have to, I would have to make the case that given the, the foreign policy problems, you know, he doesn't deserve to be up there on, on Mount Rushmore. We have reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Mark Lawrence, are you ready? Okay, I hope so. These are ungraded, non-graded, okay. <laughs> as opposed to degraded, which I don't think. What was your first job? Oh, um, wow! My first, my first job. How far back do you want me to go? Was uh, stocking shelves at a uh, at a at a small grocery store in Little Compton, Rhode Island, near near where I grew up. That's a common answer <laughs> for sure. What was your first concert? Oh man. Um, uh, 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 Kenny, Kenny Rogers, right? The gambler guy. Um, yeah, <laughs> my parents love to travel in the West. And I remember when I was probably too young to be at a Kenny Rogers concert, <laughs> hearing him, you know, after hours at the Cheyenne Rodeo or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Ooh, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm in an LBJ mode here, uh, given our conversation over the last hour, I'm going to say, go for Robert Cairo. You, you will not be disappointed. And the first volume of what is now a four volume, hopefully will one day be a five volume series is just such a masterpiece of biography and a brilliant piece of, of nonfiction writing. Can't recommend it highly enough. If you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? Oh, man. (laughs) Um, uh, I am going to say, um, I'm going to say July. This is a really really boring answer, considering that the 4th of July holiday has just passed. But I'm going to say... I, I want to be there at, you know, Independence Hall and see what the what the what 
what was going on in that room, given how important you know the the decisions are these days that are coming down for the Supreme Court. I want to understand our constitution, our our founding documents, the Declaration, and later, of course, the Constitution better than I do now, and to know more about what was in the minds of these guys, whose opinions so, two hundred and fifty years later seem to matter so much in our society. And they were so young. Yeah, forget how young some of these. They're in their early twenties signing the yeah. Declaration of Independence. Absolutely, absolutely. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, living today, two hours off the record, just to chat, whom would you choose? You know, I'm going to, I might be a little bit under the influence of what we've been talking about. I'm not going to say Lyndon Johnson. I'm going to say Richard Nixon. Um, Living uh, today. Oh, oh, sorry. Living today. Living today. Oh, 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 wow. Okay. Um, Oh, wow. Um, Which interestingly makes it harder, even though you have fewer people from which from whom to choose. Yeah. Wow. That that is a really um, a really hard one. And, um, you know, again, I'm going to give you a a kind of um, is Lucy Baines is Lucy Baines (laughs) or Linda Bird. They're both still alive. Correct. They are. They are. I'm going to give you a, an easy answer, but also one that people might not expect of me as director of the LBJ Library and professor of history. I would say Donald Trump. I want to know what makes this guy tick. And I've heard a, accounts from many people who've spoken, who've sat across tables from him, sat across the room from him and spoken to him. But I'd like to experience it for myself and get a sense of what this man is all about, but also much more importantly than that, what it is about him that seems to connect so powerfully with so many Americans. I'd I'd like to understand that connection better than I do. And so since your question is is about a single person I could sit down with, I want to sit down with him and see what insight I could get into that question. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. As always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Our guest today is Mark Lawrence, director of the Lyndon Baines Johnson Presidential Library and Museum in Austin, Texas. We've been discussing LBJ's legacy and career presidency. Mark, thank you so much for your time today. I, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it myself. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.